0: This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. Well,
1: today is Wednesday, August 12th, and summer 2020 continues to race by, with the focus now on Fall, and if, when, and how schools will reopen, and if, when, and how professional and college sports can ever safely be resumed and games played, if, when, and how. We can reclaim our lives and trade this, quote, new normal back for some semblance of the world as we once knew it, imperfect as it may have been. It beat the hell out of these past few months, if you ask me. I guess if there's anything that we're all guilty of in all of this, it's for taking our everyday living for granted in some ways, until so quickly and radically things changed. I'm so ready to get out and about again and start feeling a little less caged. That's what I'm talking about, and oh, by the way, I'm standing. Friedman, and this is Franchise Today. Please, excuse my rant, but our government has really worn me out, as they continue doing what government does best, which is little or nothing except for incessant finger-pointing and assignment of blame. It's almost like a game of ping-pong, each side bouncing the ball over the net, back and forth, left and right, give and take, the ball keeps bouncing, the volley back and forth continues, and we get to keep score regarding who we like less, the House or the Senate, Republican or Democrats, liberals, or conservatives? Well, this week's episode should, in my opinion, prove fascinating as I speak with Bruce Melman, founder and CEO of the Washington, D.C. government relations firm of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, which Bruce founded after serving in leadership positions in politics, policy, and business. Bruce's bipartisan firm helps Fortune 500 companies and innovative startups understand, anticipate, and navigate the ever-evolving po- policy environment, and trends that are likely to impact the global marketplace. His quarterly updates on political trends are widely read by business leaders and political observers across the country, and have been frequently covered in leading publications that include The Washington Post, Axios, Politico, CNN, Fortune, and the Daily Caller. When we return from a very short break, Bruce Melman will be right here with me on Franchise Today. I'm back in two minutes or less as we try to make sense of it all with Bruce Melman.
0: Franchise Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors. Hey,
1: Stan Friedman here with a word about Transitive, an amazing marketing platform that actually delivers what others can only imagine. Accurate, dependable results that are second to none. All right, without getting too deep into the weeds, Transitive connects franchisees' customer data from all sources, providing high-octane fuel for their marketing engines. They then deploy machine learning, Yes, artificial intelligence which identifies various customer traits and habits, attributes that would otherwise likely go unnoticed, and it segments these customers into groups. This is important because as we know, not all customers provide your franchisees with equal dollar value. But wouldn't it be great if they could easily identify who's who? Well, that's exactly what Transitive does. And what's more, it then accurately drives the appropriate offers to each of those customer groups, delivering specific products personalized messages to each of the group's customers. Just like that, your franchisees are engaged in laser-focused target marketing, delivering them much more bang for the buck. You've got to see it to believe it. So what are you waiting for? Order up a demo today and tell them I sent you. Find them online at www.transitive.io. That's io. Bruce Melman, welcome to Franchise Today.
2: Thanks for having me today.
1: It's a pleasure having you. And, you know, I usually begin these podcasts by asking my guests who are usually franchisors to tell us how franchising found them or how, in your case, not a Zor, but there's nobody in the International Franchise Association who you could have aspired to be friends with any higher up the food chain than one Robert Crisante. And that is your inflection point, isn't it?
2: Uh, Yeah, Robert is indeed a good friend, Uh, although uh, I, I have to tell you, we got to meet and know each other Back when we were both congressional staffers in 1999, I did not become his friend anticipating he would become king of franchise uh, 21 years later. Well, but it's funny how things work out, isn't it? We, we all take interesting paths. So for the benefit again of the audience,
1: Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas is one of the nation's most innovative government relations firms offering strategic solutions to companies, trade associations, nonprofits, and entrepreneurs that help them succeed in Washington. When you reduce that down to the lowest cost a denominator, and that becomes the word lobbyist. Would that be right?
2: Yep, that's a good description.
1: And many people have a negative view of lobbyists, but I've seen the work that you do, and specifically I want to have us chat today about some of the work that you do, and that I have followed these. I call them infographics, for lack of a better term. I don't know if you've got a name for them, but I love these visual graphics that you have put out quarterly that help explain where it is we are, where it is you feel we're going, and we're going to share with the audience on my my Facebook page for Franchise Today links to both of the current documents that are out there for Q3 2020, but without video here today, we just have to kind of talk through how you put this together, and I'll ask you to start with the great acceleration because it's riveting to me, and for years I've been saying I feel a quickening, which I thought at first was just me getting older, but the great acceleration really articulates everything that I've been feeling. So why don't I stand back and let you take a run at this and help the audience understand how it is a firm like yours does what it does to help clientele benefit from your insights to where it is we are how we got here and moreover where it is we're going
2: wow it's a lot to take on but i am uh, up for the challenge so At its core, what a lobbying firm does is it is the middleware between innovators and operators of businesses who are busy doing your jobs and elected officials and their staff, most of whom I found ran for the right reasons, are serving for noble purposes, who want to help the country, but generally don't have much domain background in most of the things they're looking at. So, you know, if you're a uh, doctor in Congress, what do you know about technology policy? Nothing. And so your question becomes, how do you learn about technology policy? Well, You can't just read a book and you don't have McKinsey as your staff. So typically you decide you want to speak to the people who are inventing, the people who are creating, the actual business entrepreneurs in the tech industry. Only they don't want to spend all of their time on the phone with you and the other 434 members of the House, 100 members of the Senate and all their staff. And so what invariably happens is the business folks find somebody who can help translate what's happening in Washington anticipate what might happen in Washington and try to help them shape what's going to happen in Washington to give them a tailwind so they're more likely to be able to create jobs, so they're more likely to be able to open more franchises. And likewise, members of Congress who are eager to hear from these leaders can't get them on the phone and they need somebody to help connect them who can spend the time to understand both sides of the conversation. So if you got rid of every lobbyist in Washington today and you got rid of everybody in in all the elected officials, you neutron bombed the town, you would replace the current uh congress with a citizen legislature which is what we got right now and you would quickly find we need somebody to speak on behalf of franchisors and franchisees uh, with policymakers because the normal franchisor and franchisee are busy running their businesses and so you'd pretty quickly reinvent a a role in the same way that if you have a legal question, you're at a law, you're at a company, you may hire a lawyer at an outside firm, even though you have an inside counsel. And if you're at a big business, you may hire Corn Ferry or you may hire uh, McKinsey to help you with uh, HR strategy, respectively, uh, even though you've got folks in your team. Uh, Businesses outsourcing to experts. And so, as at an, in a nutshell, that's the role we play. What you were referring to is what I found is uh, speaking often in PowerPoint is the language of business, but it's usually pain worse than torture. Mm -hmm. Occasionally you run into interesting uh, graphics and interesting uh, presentations of of data that actually helps you understand something better and saves you from having to read something that's 100 pages or something where the visual itself communicates, you know, the old picture is worth a thousand words. And and I found since our job, our three-part job is to help our clients understand what's going on, anticipate what's going to happen next, and try to shape out Outcomes, communicating to them about what we saw going on and why we thought it was happening and where we thought things might head next has always been pretty valuable. And in the last couple of years, where we've had a disruptor in chief as the chief executive, you know, a, a very non-traditional president uh, approaching policy in a very different way, the uh, opacity of, of what you might expect, where things are going has just gone up and the potential impact of government, whether it's trade wars or changes to immigration law or uh, rolling back some of the regulations at the National Labor Relations Board. You can just the tax patient policy. There are all these things that have led a higher number than ever to be eager to try to understand and anticipate what's happening and why is it happening. And the, uh, the piece that you described called The Great Acceleration is the latest quarterly installment of my 10 years running now effort to put out analyses that try to make sense of things. You also make note in this that there are four concurrent super disruptors that are taking place
1: now that since 1900, only three times have there been three of those super disruptors at once. Now we've got four, those being recession, pandemic, mass protest, and intense elections. And of course, as you just pointed out, the fifth is the president himself is sitting on top of all of that. Where do you see this all taking us? And how do you see this
2: playing out in terms of what happens in November? Uh, Well, I'd start with the humility uh, of someone who was fairly confident at this point in 2016, or maybe a little earlier in 2016, that it was going to be Hillary Clinton against Marco Rubio. (laughs) Uh, That uh, I don't always get it right, but uh, the, the observation that animates the most recent analysis is that for the extraordinary activities that are happening in 2020, I think the year is going to ultimately prove more accelerative than transformational. And I base that on when you look at the last several decades what you find are you find consistent trends across technology, across globalization, across culture that have been impacting our society and shaping our politics. And those trends, which I'm happy to discuss, feel like they're accelerating and they're driving towards a reform era. And what might have taken 10 years may now take two to four. And so I'm happy to unpack each. Yeah. Um,
1: well, and I think technology is probably at the top of the grid, right? I mean, we didn't have a 24-hour news cycle before we had an internet and we didn't have the kind of technology available to us to drive that news cycle until the past decade or two is when all this is really ramped up, isn't it?
2: You're right, although it's often I find when you look at technology, geopolitics, and culture, it's hard to pull one thread and say this is the thread. So in technology, three decades ago, the computer revolution really was taken off. And over the next three decades, everything was digitized, networked, made mobile, and increasingly impacted by social media. Now, that's created a lot of opportunities. Unbelievable innovation boomed, you know, whether it's uh, the Starbucks app, you can click and pick something up, or you can create a, a way. You know, you and I are talking over the computer right now, and you're you're uh, taping a podcast. Huge opportunity to reach. If you're successful, you could reach literally billions of people if they wanted to listen to the podcast. But it also generated some challenges as inequality was growing, and we saw a growing separation between those with technology skills, those who were more digitized, and the rest. And that led to a little bit of backlash. Now that was technology over three decades that was disruptive, but why while that was going on the world changed so also three decades ago in 1989 the, the uh, berlin wall came down and by 1991 the former soviet bloc all those nations joined the global economy that same year india reformed uh, autarkic policies and they joined the global economy Two years later, China had a bunch of reforms that brought them far more into the global economy. In 1993, the same year that the EU was born, and a year before both NAFTA and the WTO. That led to two decades of hyperglobalization, huge opportunities for businesses, for supply chains, for selling American brands all around the world. But it also generated a lot of labor arbitrage, regulatory arbitrage, and uh, and that led to and tax arbitrage, and that led a lot of America's middle class to feel like the old Ross Perot line was true that their jobs had, you know there's a giant sucking sound is their jobs not to mexico but went to china mm-hmm. Uh, And that led to a backlash against globalization. That was very disruptive. So you have two parallel disruptors, but wait, there's more. You also had a country that was meaningfully changing. If you look at America in 1970, if we were a TV show, we were father knows best. 68% of Americans were white and hadn't gone to college. There was kind of a comfortable conformity for white folks, but obviously a lot of folks who didn't feel that things were right for them and a combination of immigration reform that allowed a lot more folks to come here and civil rights, you know, overdue civil rights reform meant a lot more voices got heard. If we're a TV show today, we're modern family. A lot more opportunities for women. A lot more folks have gone to college, non-traditional families. But while these new voices were being heard, which is great, some old voices, in particular the media gatekeepers, went away. So the most trusted person in America in 1969 was Walter Cronkite, the guy who read the news on TV. there's only three networks, and the me- people trusted the media to inform us. Yet these days, uh, the media affirms. If you're right of center, you watch Fox. If you're left of center, you watch MSNBC or CNN. And we enter discussions with totally different worldviews. We have different sets of facts. That we think are true, makes it very much harder in politics and in policy to come to agreement. But what we found is when you take the sense of the rapid change in technology, the rapid change in geopolitics, the sense that both half the country felt that change was occurring too slowly and with civil rights was just taking too long, and half the country felt like things were moving more rapidly and that they weren't prepared, you find a nation that consistency is of a lot of Americans who feel like the 20th century institutions and policies aren't protecting them against the 21st century realities. And so what you find is people start voting for change. And uh, one of the things that I found is when you, you know, America, as you know, has a federal election every two years. In the 10 federal elections between 1960 and 1978, three saw the party in control of the House, the Senate, and or the White House change. You look then from 1980 to 1998, in those 10 federal elections, four were change elections. This century, we've had 10 more federal elections from 2000 through 2018. Eight of the 10 have been change elections. For those whose theory is everything can be explained by Donald Trump, remember he arrived in 2016. So that's the the ninth of those 10 recent elections, eight of which were change elections. He's far more of a symptom than a cause. And what I believe and what I have published about is the sense that we're in an age of disruption where people recognize that the institutions and policies from last century don't have their back, don't create the opportunities for them. And they're looking around for who can help them feel like they got a path forward.
1: So in 2016, that was clearly Donald Trump. Are those disenfranchised people now getting ready for whiplash and go back the other direction? And what does that look like?
2: So at first, I'm not sure I I agree that it was the voter's statement was clearly Donald Trump is the guy to lead us out of the wilderness as much as I think at least as many voters concluded that Hillary Clinton wasn't the person that they believe would be an agent of change. You know, look, Secretary Clinton, I mean, gosh, she was a pretty well qualified person. She had spent a time in the Senate, uh, eight years. Uh, she had been the Secretary of State for four years. She had been the First Lady for eight years. Was I don't think too many folks uh, found her lacking intelligence or lacking world perspective, but she was a bit of the personification of the establishment. She was very much seen as emblematic of the 20th century belief that these trade policies and that these economic policies, whether it was in the her husband's administration or the Obama administration, that they were repeatedly said to us as the answers. And you concurrently had a a, a political correctness going where a lot of folks felt like if they disagreed with the media, they were told that they were intolerant or they were told that they were deplorable. So look, she won by a couple million votes. So more people uh, either voted against Trump or for her than voted against her or for Trump. But I do think you found a lot of voters looking for a wrecking ball to come and break things up and change things. And for three years, the president's never cracked 50% in favorable. So a lot of people were unhappy as a rule wrecking balls don't make friends. wrecking balls bother people or upset people. Uh, but pre-pandemic with the economy white hot, the conventional wisdom was on the strength of peace and prosperity, the president was looking fairly well positioned for a re-election, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of people would suggest his style and his tweets are unnecessarily divisive. and so while his base remained very supportive, politics a lot of people say is about addition and multiplication and he was not growing his base all that much. so we figured it was going to be a close election with extraordinary economic tailwinds, more likely than not to carry him forward. And then Corona hit. And obviously the economy is in a very perilous place right now. Americans disapprove of how the president is handling the coronavirus crisis by a net 20 points. So it's like 60, 40 disapprove of how the president's handling it. The economy, some people hope maybe the Fed or there can be, can like cheerlead your way to get the economy back. But to quote James Carville, it's the pandemic, stupid. You know, I'm not going to go to a restaurant under until I think it's safe to eat in a restaurant. And others are going to not want to teach in a school or go back to school because America has allowed a lot of the health measures to turn into culture war fights. And so a lot of fairly simple things, I mean, whether you think you need a mask or whether you think you need a mask to wear me or not, even if you didn't think any of that's true, maybe you want to wear a mask so that people come to your store and so that people resume the economy. And we're seeing a lot of the European economies open for business again. and South Korea and Japan and Australia have all reopened opened in a way that America's struggling to, in part because the virus has come back with a vengeance here and, and not so much in a lot of those other countries. And all of that creates pretty significant headwinds for the president. You'd throw in the triple play of the year is uh, following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Original sin and longstanding raw wound in the United States of racial injustice has led to some protests, mostly peaceful. But the president took a pretty aggressive kind of 1968 Mayor Daley approach to to uh, staking his claim of what he thought was going on and where he saw things, and that has inflamed a lot of the sentiment and a lot of the dialogue, and I think has hurt his ability to try to be a national leader. And so coming back to where I started, uh, he was successful as a wrecking ball. The core question is, 2016 was a year for a wrecking ball. I'm not sure if 2020 is a year for a wrecking We're talking with Bruce Melman, founder of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas.
0: Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors.
1: This portion of Franchise Today is brought to you by Zoracle, providers of spot-on profiles, the gold standard of assessment tools that assure you're selecting the right franchisees every time. Unlike DISC or others that simply gauge personality or communication styles, Zoracle's spot-on assessments are all franchise-specific and based upon seven sciences that nail the results each and every time. Your prospects simply answer a few questions online and like magic, Zoracle’s algorithms scientifically slice, dice and analyze their thresholds for risk, their business acumen and even their propensity for single or multi-unit ownership. zoracles spot on analysis is like having a crystal ball, but there's no hoodoo here. It's all based upon science that flawlessly determines franchisee, franchisor compatibility, and accurately predicts performance. Why don't you schedule a demo today and take a complimentary look and see for yourself, it's the closest thing to a sure thing. Zoracle, spot-on assessments based on science, but delivering results that seem simply magical. Check them out at www.zoracleprofiles.com dot com. And we're back and continuing our conversation with Bruce Melman, the founder and CEO of Washington, D.C. lobbyist firm, Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, one of the nation's most innovative government relation firms where they offer their clients strategic solutions to government-related problems, and they serve trade associations, nonprofits, and entrepreneurs that secure them to help navigate the ropes in the ever-changing world of government. Bruce, COVID-19 is sitting at the helm, and we are less than 100 days from election. Do you think it's going to be the deciding factor at this juncture?
2: Well, it is it is the overwhelming reality in 2020 more than anything else you can think of, more than anything else I can think of. It's why the economy is challenged. 150,000 of our fellow citizens have died. There's a great unknown about whether schools are going to be able to safely reopen and teachers are going to be able and willing to teach. You're seeing a lot of businesses that are, are trying to adjust and to become far more remote and work-from-home capable. Sports is operating in bubble. and and half seasons and we'll see what football is able to do. But even if they are able to play, the odds of a giant stadium filled with seat to seat Americans screaming, cheering and guzzling beer feels zero. So it's the overwhelming reality and will be the overwhelming reality in the election. Within that, though, there are a couple of questions. First, there'll be a referendum on how one thinks the current president dealt with it. Do you think he was successful or unsuccessful? Right now, that's not trending well for the president. He's got to demonstrate Demonstrate either uh, new policies or greater success or to do things that inspire greater confidence. Of course, elections are a choice, so the uh, challenger is going to have to, at a minimum, not make a mistake, but also, ideally, for a challenger, put out their own policies. Uh, concurrent with that, though, is I think people have mistaken the stock market for the real economy. Uh, I've heard the description rather than a V-shaped bounce back to the way things were, it's a K-shaped recovery where those uh, who can work remotely and those who have significant stock 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 market holdings are doing just fine. The stock market's more or less back to the way it was. And for a lot of folks, if you can work remotely, it's less convenient, but actually there's some upsides too, like more time with your kids or maybe more exercise in my case, instead of commuting. And we're all doing okay, but a lot of Americans aren't able to go back to work. They're looking at businesses that have been bleeding and and they're at great risk. And so if the first question at the reelect is going to be, do you think this guy is the right person to lead us for the next year amidst ongoing pandemic. Question two is who's better suited to put policies in place that would allow for a roaring economic recovery? And I do think there will be a uh, number of folks who will begin the sentence with, well, I don't like what he tweets, I don't like what he says, and I don't like how divisive he is, and then they'll say, but. And some of them will say, you know, know, I care about the judges that he puts onto the courts of the Supreme Court. Others will say, I think he's more likely to put policies in place that are going to allow the economy to recover, and that right now, even if he's divisive on fill-in-the-blank, on race, on gender, on all these other issues, there will be some number of people who will say they believe his tax and regulatory approach and agenda will be more conducive to faster growth. That all said, as we talked about, there's there's some folks who are going to want more calm, will feel like you pick a disruptor during peace and prosperity when you want to shake things up. Do you want somebody who shakes things up when we're already really shaken up by the pandemic, the uh, extraordinarily deep recession? by uh, post-George Floyd racial injustice, the considerations and, and peaceful protests and counter-protests. And I think for some, there may be a desire to quote the 1920s for a return to normalcy.
1: Before we get to what leaders can prepare for for the coming crises and your five talk points on that topic, I just wonder, does the House and Senate go with the presidential election and follow suit? Or what are your thoughts there?
2: It's really hard to see Republicans picking the House back up. It feels like that's going to stay in Democratic control. There are more Republican retirements than Democratic retirements. Democratic candidates have outraised the Republicans in the battleground seats by three or four to one. They've held ranks very well. Uh, there aren't a lot of obvious votes that are, uh, that are huge challenge votes for them. And so uh, it's just hard to see a path, especially where the top of the ticket is, you know, is net negative approval and underwater. It doesn't feel like President Trump's going to have coattails to say nothing of the kind of coattails he'd need to capture the House back. The Senate's tight. The Senate, at the moment, the betting markets think the Democrats pick up the Senate. And election by election, Republicans are currently plus three. They're almost sure to pick up Alabama, which makes the Republicans plus four. But Democrats are looking very strong in a variety of places, such as Arizona, which would be back to plus three. The polling is tough for Cory Gardner, a great Republican senator in Colorado. Everybody loves that guy. But in a presidential year, it's going to be a blue state by a lot. And so he's going to have to run so far ahead of the president. It's going to be tough. North Carolina is very tight. Maine is very tight. Maine is also a blue state, although Senator Susan Collins is so tough and is so well regarded in Maine. That could go either way. Iowa is tighter than Republicans wish Iowa were. You have two seats up in Georgia. So you look at the battlefield and if it's a big Biden year, you figure the Democrats probably pick up the Senate. If it's a really tight presidential year, you may get to a 50-50 or a 51 49 Senate with Republicans having a a viable shot at holding.
1: Well, it's not that far out there that we're going to know the answers to all of this, Bruce. We might bring you back to do a post-mortem on it after the fact. But before we lose you today, I would really enjoy having you share with the audience those five talk points about how leaders today can prepare for the coming crises, no matter which way things go politically. What are those five things that begin with trust that our audience can take out of this podcast as actionable items?
2: Happy to discuss, though. I would note, if you want to have me back to talk about what happened in the elections, can we schedule it for February? because I don't know if we'll know before <laughs> To know Actually, before then? Actually, I think the biggest worry when I published at the start of 2020 about potential black swans, my biggest worry was a disputed election where we don't know the next day. And, you know, think of the old Bush v. Gore felt like a yep. constitutional crisis. And that was the son of a senator against the son of a president. If you throw a Donald Trump into the mix and there's uncertainty about, you know, whether polling places in a city in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, whether they reduced the number of them because of the pandemic or whether it was a partisan play. I'm really worried in a tight election that we could see the biggest protests in American history, but uh, I will turn to the question you asked instead of that horribly frightening question.
1: Let's park that out there for February or whenever it is, and we'll bring you back to talk about that then.
2: The five recommendations we offer for leaders, first, we think trust is the most important brand attribute of the decade. A lot of businesses are going to be judged on what they did to help in 2020, and you need to demonstrate that you have a commitment to your employees, to your community, to safety, to the quality of your brand. Remember, we're in a world where when you look at the value of companies in the stock market, intangibles are greater as a share of the total value than ever before. A lot of that's brand and brand will come down to trust. Number two, the disruptive innovation, the technology, technological change of the last three decades, it's not as if it's here and now we can all get used to it. The way you might think about electrification, where once there was electrification, there wasn't a whole new generation of electricity Twenty years after that, obviously there were improvements in the grid and such, but technology driven by artificial intelligence, machine learning, three D manufacturing—that's accelerating. And so I think there are going to be the businesses that can disrupt their sectors, and the businesses that are disrupted, and the latter are going to struggle to survive. Point number three is I think the the deglobalization phenomenon, the backlash against globalization, uh, a new world order defined by U.S. versus China, as opposed to a more of a competition which is the way they were operating previous to that, or if you call them frenemies before, they're now outright enemies. And that creates challenges for your supply chain. Do you have enough optionality? Are you engaging with lots of local governments? There's going to be a lot more geopolitical risk and a lot more friction. Point number four, we're seeing leadership outside of Washington. 40 years ago, if you won Washington, everything else would follow. In the United States, privacy and gig work is being led by uh, this California legislature. And you're seeing other states and you're seeing at the mayoral level and sometimes driven by even NGOs. Who's doing the most to deal with uh, diseases around the world, the Gates Foundation or USAID? The answer is the Gates Foundation. So for a lot of businesses, figuring out who you can work with at the local, state, and other level, not just government leaders, but also NGOs and charities. And you're going to have a whole lot of fights on your hand, and you're going to want people who can speak to your quality and your decency and to your commitment to stakeholders. And it's great if you can return a kick-ass dividend every year, but when you've got a fight in the state house. They don't judge you by whether you've ever missed a dividend. They judge you by whether you're contributing to the community. The last point is, I do believe as we started, we are looking at a decade of reform. I'm not troubled by that. I mean, some get all upset and think, well, there's a fight against capitalism. I don't believe we're heading to socialism. I look back at America in the Gilded Age, when there were technological change and demographic change, and you back then as well had citizens feeling unprepared and unprotected. And you ended up with a lot of significant reforms. They invented anti trust law. There was worker safety law and food safety law. Unions gained a bunch of power. You had the direct election of senators, income taxation, and women having the right to vote all as constitutional amendments. There was the high school movement ensuring that American students didn't end in eighth grade, but made it through 12th and learned skills relevant to then new 20th century. All of those, the the Gilded Age, the way the world was then is very parallel to the way it is now. The types of reforms that were needed then are similar to what I think people think are needed now. And recalled, the the progressive era reforms of the 1900s, 19-teens, 1920s didn't kill capitalism. It led to a century of extraordinary growth and success where capitalism and market-led economics is what defeated Hitler, defeated the Cold War, and has reduced human suffering to an unprecedented extent. So I'm a capitalist. I started my own company. I represent capitalism or capitalist entities. At the same time, reforms are clearly needed. We're going to have to find a way to expand the winner's circle and to ensure that opportunity in America is not as narrowly contained as it presently is if we want another American century and if we want more great growth for capitalists and for Franchisees, I'm optimistic that we'll get there in the medium and the long term. I am scared down to my socks about the short term.
1: Well, I think that's well said, and you're not alone. Like I said, we'll get back together hopefully February or sooner to take a closer look at where we landed on November 3rd and what it's going to mean for us as we move forward. Bruce, I would ordinarily ask for you to provide contact info, but I'm going to be posting both the Great Acceleration and the COVID-19 decks to the franchise today. Facebook page and those who want to find you will be able to do so and link up to you from there. I would ask you though if there's anything else I didn't ask that you think would be an appropriate parting shot to share with the audience.
2: You know, I felt like you asked great questions and I answered them all about four times longer than I should have if I had a chance to write my answers instead of babbling. So I feel I've said my piece and you asked great questions. Well,
1: I appreciate that and I appreciate you taking the time to join us. You are in a very, very busy world right now and at a very busy time of year. So it's much appreciated and I thank you for your friendship with Robert which enabled me to have this introduction to you as well and to share all of this great information with my audience.
2: It was terrific talking to you, Stan. Thanks for having me. What an interesting
1: guy and a great conversation. And you'll enjoy it even more if you make your way over to the Franchise Today Facebook page and download both of Bruce's Q3 2020 decks. One is a standalone on COVID-19, and the other, The Acceleration, discusses the topics more broadly that we were focused on today. Next week, we'll be joined by serial entrepreneur Alan Young, co-founder of the wildly successful Shelf Genie and CEO of Franbridge Capital, his latest venture, putting a whole new spin on private equity as we continue pushing Pushing through the disruption that's been foisted upon us by COVID-19. Until then, keep doing the best you can. I'm Stan Friedman, wishing you the best. The very best of all things franchising. And Franchise Today is out.